Welcome to the second installment of Unfucking the Republic, where we dissect the good, the bad, and the ugly of American politics and highlight the disconnect between U.S. policy and reality. Today, we're talking budget, national priorities, and dispelling the myth that things like healthcare, education, and social safety nets are just too expensive to pay for. We are fucking up trickle-down by busting up the budget and breaking down how our priorities expose our lack of humanity. So let's begin. Oh, my friends, we are fucked. Deliciously, unreservedly, catastrophically fucked. And not the good kind. We'll traverse this audio journey together to upend conventional wisdom, blow up narratives on the left, right, and middle, and use magical devices like facts, logic, and reason to explain how exactly we arrived in Bizarro America, the funhouse mirror version of what was originally intended. I have found myself more and more fully committed to being ungovernable. We'll examine exactly how and why we're fucked. You want to claim this land is the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country cannot just be a flag. Dig into why we can't seem to unfuck ourselves. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in a history book. Ask why we settle for leaders who fuck us over. Please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. And see if we can unfuck things just a bit, all by ourselves. I do think that as long as you continue looking at things through that old patriarchal Cartesian Atonian lens, you're going to miss out on what the world really is. We're number one, baby. We have the most billionaires, the biggest debt, most incarcerated people, and we're number one in defense spending. America, fuck yeah! America, fuck yeah! Fuck yeah! Our debt is a monster because we spend like drunken sailors on some stuff. But when it comes to funding things like healthcare, education, food security, mental health, and clean water, suddenly we get alligator arms. Poor people have been budgetary boogeymen in this country for decades. Reagan had his welfare queens. George H.W. Bush had his thousand points of light, which was really just a call to volunteerism and a return to church values instead of sucking off the government's teat. Bill Clinton had a convenient answer for all of the dispossessed and disenfranchised poverty-stricken Americans who found themselves sidelined by economic gain and opportunity during the Reagan and Bush years. He opened up the prison pipeline and helped fill jails nationwide with new draconian drug laws. Can you feel my pain now, Bill? Let's skip W for a second. The Obama administration did put Humpty Dumpty back together again after Bush screwed the pooch by cutting taxes on the eve of starting two wars and fostering an environment of reckless fuckery and banking that led to the housing collapse and the Great Recession. But Obama blew his political capital in the first two years on the ACA and the Recovery and Reinvestment Act before running into the Cantor ryan McConnell legislative buzzsaw. So he has the distinction of overseeing a massive widening of inequality that saw 90% of the post-recession wealth gains go to the top 1% of wealthy Americans. The Trump years? Forget <laughs> about it. Today, the wealth gap is greater than it was in France, just prior to the French Revolution. Back to everyone's favorite whipping post, W. Turns out, in the modern presidential era, 
the president that focused most on building the lower and middle classes was W. He did more to close the homeownership gap among impoverished and ethnic populations and increase real wages than the other presidents. Ask conservatives how they feel about W, and you probably won't get a great reaction. Not because they think he's a lousy public speaker, use ginned-up intelligence to wage wars on two nations that didn't attack us, blow open the national debt, and allow the financial sector to run amok with little to no oversight leading to the complete implosion of the financial markets. No. They'll tell you he was soft on immigration and didn't cut welfare or taxes enough for their taste. Seriously, that's their big bush problem. Yeah, like a lot means big bush. I like a big bush. Do you know why they call Medicare and Social Security entitlements? Because we're entitled to them, you fucking pricks. They're fully funded. We pay for those things with our money. Oh, and those illegal immigrants you hate so much? Those migrant workers that pick fruit or wash dishes in greasy diners, mow your fucking lawn and take care of your kids? They pay about $7 billion a year into Social Security through payroll taxes using fake ID numbers, and they'll never get the benefits of them. So basically, they're helping to subsidize your retirement while they do the work that your lazy fucking kids think they're too good to do. Who's entitled now? So when we think about things like budget and priorities, I like putting things into a useful and personal context. Let's say the United States was a household. A nice one. End of a cul-de-sac, manicured, long, good school district kind of nice. And let's say the family that lives inside has a $100,000 budget to use at their discretion. Right or wrong, if they ran this house like we run the country, here's how they would spend a hundred grand. About 16 grand would go towards the mortgage, cable, utilities, and generally running the house. They would pay 24,000 in health insurance and put 27,000 away towards retirement, which is pretty smart. They'd also pay about 7,000 in life insurance premiums, which is a little paranoid, but no judgment. $2,000 towards education and another four boxes of ziti in your car, your lawyer, a gym membership, oh, and food. Now, if you're quick on the uptake, you'd be like, yo, you're 20 grand short. Here's the best part. Remember, they're a little paranoid, right? So even if they live in a great neighborhood with little to no crime, they're not taking any chances. So they spend about 20 grand a year on private security camera systems and alarms. I know that's like 13 times what they spend every year on food and nine times more than they spend on education, but you never know when some shit's about to go down. But wait! Here's the insulting part. Our fake family is a little reckless because they only make 50 grand a year. So now let's talk real numbers so we can talk about priorities. There are two sides of the American budget, mandatory and discretionary. Mandatory spending is required by law. We chose these things and legislated them over time. Discretionary is what we choose on an ongoing basis, and for argument's sake, let's say it's about 60-40, mandatory to discretionary. 60 have to, 40 want to. Let's start with the smaller piece in discretionary spending, the things we choose to fund in the budget based upon how much money we expect to take in through revenues, basically taxes. Military funding is about $700 billion, which is 53% of the discretionary spending budget. If you add spending on veterans programs to the overall military budget, it's 57%. Currently, we operate more than 800 bases around the world. Some are small and some are enormous, and all told, outside of the cost to operate the bases when we're quote-unquote at war, we spend upwards of 80 to 100 billion a year just to maintain them. 
About 35% funds things like science, space exploration, the environment, transportation, the justice system, and international affairs. The leftover funds are allocated towards social safety net programs. You know, stuff for those welfare queens. Thousand points of light. Things like SNAP, which are food stamps. Supplemental income for elderly or the disabled poor. School meals, low-income housing assistance, childcare assistance, and such. All told, it's about 8%. Welfare is 8% of the discretionary budget. Or if you prefer, a little more than 3% of the entire budget. So when you hear people argue about so-called welfare, remind them that they're talking about 3.5% of the total budget. Switching to the other side of the equation, we have the bigger part of the budget, about 60% of government spending on the have-tos, otherwise known as mandatory spending. These are items that are legislated, many of them coming throughout the 20th century as America matured. Programs that saved the nation under Roosevelt and Truman, or guaranteed a future in Johnson's Great Society. The big three, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, account for the lion's share of the budget, about 85%. The remaining 15% or so goes towards retirement funds, income security programs, and miscellaneous veteran spending. So when people freak out about things like Medicaid as an entitlement, it's helpful to put it in a bit of perspective. For example, we'll spend as much on interest on our debt this year as we will on Medicaid. That's right, just the interest on our debt, fueled by the now trillion dollar budget deficit in 2019 and Lord knows what it will be in 2020 will be more than what we spend on health coverage for the poorest people in America. And who are they? Well, one in five Americans receives Medicaid. That's 20%. So just look around. And please, please remember that Social Security and Medicare are fully funded programs. They're covered before we even begin breaking down our priorities because the money comes directly from taxpayers and goes into the budget. We levy additional taxes to pay for all of the other stuff. And if there's a shortfall, we have three options. Raise taxes, borrow money, or just print it. Now, the argument against raising taxes has been pretty well documented over the past few decades. It's had a few different names like trickle-down and job killer, but the thesis is essentially the same. If we raise taxes on the rich, they'll flee. Where? No one knows. But they'll leave. The MAGA crew likes to point out that America was at its best in the post-World War II era, conveniently forgetting that the tax rate on the highest earners during that period ranged from 70 to 90%. Why was it so high? Because we had a fucking war to pay for. And guess what happened to the wealthy during that period? They got wealthier. In fact, everyone did. Because that's what happens when you invest in your people. The rising tide lifts all boats. So because the propaganda battle has been so decisively won... That's the battle that has average Americans voting against their best interests to protect low taxes on the wealthy. We've had no choice but to fill our budget gaps by borrowing. And because we're the largest economy on the planet, by far, we've been able to do so without blowing our creditworthiness. No matter how much we borrow, there's always a market. But economists on both sides of the aisle were always concerned that we could go just a bit too far. That we could print too much money or borrow too much money. As it turns out, this too has been a convenient part of the modern narrative against spending on discretionary items like food, healthcare, or education. The propaganda machine basically distills it down to this. We need to borrow more or print money to fund the military. Outside of that, it's every family for themselves because, you know, the national debt. Can't go too far. It would be irresponsible. Then... 
came the pandemic. For years, the mantra of the Federal Reserve was that we can't simply print money to get out of a situation, even though we did it in 2008 and 2009. Printing money will devalue the currency and increase interest rates, which will pressure inflation and begin the cycle of hyperinflation and interest rates. Gas will go through the roof, cause lines at the gas stations like the 1970s. There'll be food shortage and mass unemployment. Bell bottoms will be all the rage. The coronavirus exposed this concept as a myth. We injected trillions of dollars into the economy. Everyone got a check. We poured money into the banks. We bought corporate bonds, which is fucking unbelievable, by the way, to assure liquidity in the fixed income market. You get a check, and you get a check. PPP money flew out not once, but twice, and we braced for impact. And then, nothing, nothing happened. So the nothing grows stronger. What is the nothing? It's the emptiness that's left. No skyrocketing interest rates, no run on gas, no crazy inflation. Just a whole bunch of people losing jobs, losing their health care, losing loved ones. But the markets? Fine and fucking dandy. Equities are through the roof because investors, private and institutional, know that the U.S. is one of only a handful of countries in the world with the economic depth and resources to print money with alacrity. And we're the world's reserve currency to boot, which makes us extra, extra special. So if we get in trouble, we can just invent more money. We can just decide to not let our corporations and investments suffer. Monetary policy, in the way we've understood it over the past several decades, is a fucking hoax. Which means, if we can simply decide to buy corporate bonds and provide liquidity to banks to the tune of trillions, we could also decide to give just about everyone in America food, clean water, healthcare, debt-free education. In fact, it would probably be cheaper to do that than spend a couple of trillion on corporate welfare and wars that we just invent. Seriously, think about this for a second. For decades, they've been telling us that we can't afford to subsidize education and healthcare like every other fucking developed country on the planet because our entitlements cost too much money. We'll blow the deficit, add to the debt, saddle future generations. Sorry, folks, but putting food on the table, providing an education and offering healthcare is just a bridge too far. I'll say this much. Thank God the pandemic came in an election year because dollars to donuts, they never would have sent out stimulus checks to the people. This fucker would have just bailed out the banks and let everyone suffer. The upshot? We were able to pour trillions of dollars in a matter of months into the system and nothing changed. When Bill Clinton took office, the U.S. had $4 trillion in debt total. This year, we're going to run a $4 trillion deficit. In other words, in just one year, we're going to lose more money than the total amount of accumulated debt of the nation through 1990 fucking two. But go ahead. Tell me again how we can't afford food stamps, fuckers. You know what's funny when it rains and pours. They got money for wars but can't feed the poor. The average household income in the United States is 60 grand. In New York, where I am, it's about 80 grand because everything is so goddamn expensive. And we got to go all in every day, paycheck to paycheck with our 80 grand to make it. All while being called out for wanting the entitlements that we pay for. When the wealthy class and political overlords that grease the rails just print money, literally. 
That's it. That's the whole lesson here. That our circumstances, homelessness, poverty, for-profit healthcare, mass incarceration, bankruptcies due to medical bills or college debt, all of it is a choice. And by the way, that's not real capitalism, folks. But that's for another episode. Here endeth the lesson.